Well, please have your Bible open at Galatians chapter 6. This one letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, proved sufficient to transform the life of a man who, under God, would change the spiritual life for much of continental Europe and whose spiritual legacy lives on today. And that was Martin Luther. And there have been many others since. Paul's clarity and persuasion on the issue of being justified before God through faith alone, in Christ alone, as a gift of God because of his grace alone, is the gospel of Christ which is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God unto salvation. Now I trust that you likewise are persuaded and that you are trusting in the complete and atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, because there is none other, for the forgiveness of your sins, in order that you might be reconciled to God and know him as your father, that you might have the certain hope of new life now and life everlasting this letter is both an outpouring of his heart in love for Christ's people and Christ's church, and it's also a clinical dismantling of error and the affirming of the true doctrines of the faith out of his love for Christ. And now he brings this letter to a close, and we see that as he does so, he gets really personal. It wasn't at all uncommon for men like Paul particularly someone like him with his academic background, to use a personal assistant to write down these letters as he dictated them. Such a person in those days was called an amanuensis. It originated in ancient Rome, comes from the Latin servus amanu, which is to have a slave to hand or a personal assistant. And uh, someone who was within hand's reach. Eventually, the role developed into that of a personal secretary. I was going to say that some of us just get married instead, but that might not go down too well. But he had this amanuensis who would, uh, dicta he would dictate his letters to. Might not have been the same person all the time, necessarily. And given the ailments that Paul suffered with his eyes... Having an amanuensis might almost have been a necessity for him, perhaps. And maybe that goes a long way to explain why he talks about the large letters that he's now using as he takes up the pen. So Paul writes himself. And in his own hand, with his poor eyesight, explaining the stark change in handwriting style that those who were reading the original letter would have noticed. And he wants to emphasize these closing points. He wants us to be in no doubt, this really is from me to you. And the fact that these are his closing words, the fact that he's taken up his pen himself to write it, means that it's particularly important. And I literally had a tingle go down my spine this week as I was thinking about this. These words that we're about to read and think about 
were personally written down by a man who on the Damascus road heard the voice of Christ speak to him as he and all of his companions in the middle of the day when the sun is at the highest in the sky saw the brightest light they've ever seen. And subsequently, Christ met with this man personally, qualifying him as a witness to the resurrection. And Christ personally revealed to Paul all of these great truths which are written in his letters. And as I was writing these things down in my notes, another tingle went down my spine to think that this is what we're holding in our hands. This is what we are able to read. Why would our Bibles remain closed and unread for so many hours through the week? So what's so important that Paul wants to write it down himself? That should concern us. So let's take a look and see what we can learn. Well, we've already dealt now with verse 11. And we're going to take the following six verses in three groups of two and close with Paul's words of verse 18. Now, the sermon is titled, What the Gospel Is. But the first point is this, what the gospel is not. That's verses 12 and 13. What the gospel is not. And just to let you know, my three points this afternoon will get progressively shorter. Now, Paul's desire is to briefly remind them, first of all, of the main points he's been covering. And the first of those is this, what the gospel is not. Now, this is really important because it's very easy to have a confession of faith which states certain things which are absolutely true, but which also contains things which are absolutely not true. Now, you can read through certain statements of faith and discover that. You'll find it, for example, if you read through the writings of the Roman Catholic Church. To pick one example, you can find in their literature sentences and even whole paragraphs explaining certain points of doctrine and you would find you agree with them completely. But alongside them, intermingled with them, there are all kinds of statements with which we could never agree. And in some cases, they contradict the ones that we agree with. And so you'd find yourself saying, yes, that is the gospel. But no, that is not the gospel. And on that basis, we must reject it. Because it's not the gospel. And that's the error into which the Galatian church have fallen. It's an error which all churches must seek to avoid. And in order to avoid it, you need to know what the gospel is not. Now, this has been the downfall of much of the wider Christian world over the last few hundred years. Churches, Bible colleges, 
even whole denominations, have failed to recognize, failed to refute, failed to reject something which is not the gospel. And even if it's not actually written down anywhere in black and white, it is nevertheless what they believe, what they preach, and what they practice. And it simply is not the gospel. Much of Paul's time in his letter writing is addressing churches about what the gospel is not. A few years ago, uh, John MacArthur, who pastors Grace Church in California, many of you at least know his name, he was reflecting upon his time having spent 40 years at that point in pastoral ministry. And he was saying that he had never imagined how much of his time as a pastor and preacher would be taken up having to expose and refute that which was gaining a foothold in evangelical churches, which is not the gospel. Nor had he ever imagined how many churches which had begun with a solid biblical heritage would go on to embrace things which are not the gospel. Now, he and I have our differences on a few points of doctrine, as I do, for example, with our Presbyterian brethren. But I've got many of their books on my bookshelves. Why? If I have some differences with them. For this reason, there are two key issues about which I am in agreement with them. And it's these. What the gospel is and what the gospel is not. On those two key issues, we're in agreement. And it's because we're in agreement on that that I'm happy to read their books, even though I may disagree with a few other areas. What the gospel is not. What it's not is a message that there is something that you must do in order to be saved. Now the Bible says much about what your heavenly father and your Lord and Savior expect and require of you once you are saved because you are his. That was touched upon this morning. There's a certain type of life that you now ought to live as a Christian. But there's nothing you can do in order to be saved because salvation is all of God. God justifies sinners. Sinners cannot justify themselves. God reconciles sinners to himself. Sinners cannot recon reconcile themselves to God. This is Paul's clear and consistent message through all of his teaching, and that's what he's been emphasizing in this letter. But you see, the problem is these Galatian believers have allowed themselves to be convinced that in order to be saved, in order to be a Christian at all, it's not enough to repent of your sins and trust in the completed work of Christ. In addition, they must also be circumcised and keep the law. 
So in verse 12, we read this, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. You have to be able to demonstrate that you have done this, is what they're saying. You have to be able to show that you have attained to that standard, is what the false teachers have brought into the church. You have to be able to show that in one measure or another, you have done what is required. And on the basis of that, you may be saved. That is not the gospel, nor is anything else that ever sounds like it. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law. If you're going to rely upon law keeping, you've got to keep all of it. But these who are insisting that you get circumcised, they're complete hypocrites because there's whole swathes of the law that they don't keep. There's whole swathes of the law that they can't keep, just like the rest of us. In his own handwriting, he reminds them about two things which can mark out people who peddle a message which is not the gospel. You see it first in verse 12. That they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. The Jewish religious elite hated Christians because they hated Christ. It was they who had Christ crucified because he offended their religion of self-righteousness. The message that you are so sinful that you deserve eternal condemnation and that you are totally incapable of ever producing sufficient good in order that you can please God, well, that's a message that offends proud, sinful, self-reliant hearts. That this Jesus of Nazareth, this blaspheming friend of sinners as they saw him, the one who they had executed like the rotten criminal they thought he was, with rotten criminals on either side of him at Calvary, to suggest that he was God's promised Messiah, that was an appalling notion to the Jewish leaders. Anyone who claims that by means of the cross of Christ, that both Jew and Gentile alike may be forgiven of their sins and have a place in Israel and in heaven. No, 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 they were saying. And so those who preach the cross and nothing but the cross, like Paul and the apostles, that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away my sin and make me whole again, they were mercilessly persecuted by zealous Jews. And of course, Paul, in his years as Saul, was one of those zealous Jews persecuting Christians, even to death. These who've come to Galatia with that which is not the gospel, they have managed to avoid that kind of persecution. How? 
by insisting that to be a Christian, you must also be a good Jew and keep the law. And that took the sting away, you see. Because the Jewish hierarchy would say, well, all right then. As long as you're upholding all of our traditions, as long as you're insisting upon the law, as long as they're living lives which, in our eyes, make them look like good Jewish people, we'll leave you alone. These false teachers were preaching a gospel which did not offend the Jewish hierarchy. And so the persecution was not there. Well, how does that translate into, this, into our situation today? Well, I'll give you an example. I'll give you two. Depending on what kind of uh, Christian literature you might get and emails you might receive through the week and so on, uh, you might have noticed that a man called Steve Chalk hit the headlines this last week. Steve Chalk is a former Baptist minister. He's the head and founder of the Oasis Trust. He's been in the headlines in the Christian press. Another man like him is Paul Bayes. He's the current Bishop of Liverpool. These are two men who receive all kinds of plaudits from this godless world. Why? I'll tell you why. It's because they play down the message of the cross. And instead, they embrace this world's agenda. The Bishop of Liverpool is a patron of Liverpool Gay Pride. Steve Chalk affirms that also. And in doing so, they avoid the persecution that comes with proclaiming the true message of the cross. It's happening today. And here's a mark of those who peddle a message which is not the gospel, verse 13, that they may boast in your flesh. They may boast in the things that you're doing in your life. In Paul's day, it was that Christians were living like Jews. That's the error that's come into the Galatian church. Look at this person. Look at the lifestyle they've adopted. They've done that because of me. I've persuaded all these Galatian Christians, the false teachers were saying. I've persuaded them to, persuaded them to become circumcised and to follow the law. Each one of them is a feather in my cap. That was in Paul's day. That's what's going on in Galatia. Well, what is it today? Well, for men like Steve Chalk and the Bishop of Liverpool, it's the fact that people can remain in their sinful lifestyle and still call themselves Christians simply by saying that they love Jesus and that God is love. And that's all that matters. Repent of your sin? How dare you be so unloving? How dare you be so unchristian? And their boast is that they accept all of these people in their sinful lifestyles. And isn't it wonderful that God's love extends to them like that? Well, of course, God's love and grace and mercy does reach out to all, but not like that. You must repent of your sin and flee from it. Let him who stole steal no more. And you can run through all the other commandments and say the same equation. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, 
said Jesus. I read this the other week. A scriptural view of sin is one of the best antidotes to the extravagantly broad and liberal theology which is so much in vogue at the present time. The tendency of modern thought is to reject dogmas, creeds, every kind of boundary in religion. It's thought grand and wise to condemn no opinion whatsoever and to pronounce all earnest and clever teachers to be trustworthy, however destructive their opinions may be. The atonement and substitution of Christ, the personality of the devil, the miraculous elements in Scripture, the reality and eternity of future punishment, all these mighty foundation stones are coolly tossed overboard like lumber in order to lighten the ship of Christianity and enable it to keep pace with modern science. Stand up for these great truths and you are called narrow, illiberal, old-fashioned, a theological fossil. So said J.C. Ryle 150 years ago. Those Jewish Christians who've convinced the Galatians, men today who are leading tens of thousands astray, they pat themselves on the back, they feel very wonderful that because of the stance they've taken, all of these people may consider themselves to be part of God's family. On the one hand in Galatia, because they are keeping the law. On the other hand today, because it doesn't matter how much you break the law. Perversely, both situations fall into the same category. But that's false teaching for you. What the gospel is not, you need to know, says Paul. And secondly, of course you also need to know what the gospel is. And that's verses 14 and 15. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. One focus. It's about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the world being dead to me and me having died to the world. And of having been made a new creation in Christ Jesus. The cross. Christ died for our sins. He laid down his life for his sheep. He paid the ransom. Paid the penalty for our sins. Atoned for our sins. The one who knew no sin. Made sin for us. The just one. For all the unjust ones. God reconciling us to himself, making us to be at peace with him through the blood of the cross of Christ. We stand before God as guilty sinners with a charge sheet that seems to run on forever. So many sins. The list of our offenses of which we're guilty before God seems to have no end. But 
everything which condemned us, God has taken away, having nailed it to the cross in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, at that time you were without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The whole focus is the cross. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Behold the amazing sight The Savior lifted high, the Son of God, his soul's delight, expires in agony. For whom, for whom, my heart, were all those sorrows born? Why did he feel that piercing smart and wear that crown of thorn? For us, in love, he bled. For us in anguish died. T'was love that bowed his sacred head and pierced his precious side. Jesus was slain for me at Calvary. Crowned with thorns was he at Calvary. There in his anguish he died. There from his opened side poured forth the crimson tide. At Calvary, pardoned is all my sin. At Calvary, cleansed is my heart within. At Calvary, now robes of praise I wear. Gone are my grief and care. Christ bore my burdens there. At Calvary, because that's what the gospel is. Verse 14, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Bible teaches that by means of our union with Christ, we were crucified with him. What does that mean? It means that the world and worldliness is dead to me and I am done with it. That's what it means. And as far as the world is concerned, it wants no more to do with me. I'm dead to it. That once strong bond with sin and sinfulness is gone. Christ has defeated it and taken it away. I've been set free from sin and now to live is Christ. Because he not only died, he rose again and he's my living Lord and Savior. 
This is what the gospel is. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but being a new creation on the inside. If you're a Christian, you've been made new. You've been renewed on the inside, in the soul, being given a new heart, a new character, a new will. And with that new heart and according to that new character and because of that new will, you turn in repentance from all your sins and you believe and you trust in Christ alone. You trust him for forgiveness, for salvation and for everlasting life. By grace you've been saved. It isn't of works. None of us can boast about anything we've done. It's all the gift of God. And so our only boast like Paul, is the cross. That's what the gospel is. So, are you a Christian? And as we close, one final thought. Who gospel people are? Who gospel people are? Verses 16 to 18. Paul says, as many as walk according to this rule. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul has laid out before you this afternoon what the gospel is not and what the gospel is. Those who walk according to this rule. Those who understand and agree, that is not the gospel. And those who are clinging to that which is the gospel, which means clinging to the cross of Christ above everything else. You don't simply agree with it. You don't even say that you believe it. You have to be someone who is walking it those who walk according to this rule those who are living this gospel life those whose lives are a testimony of living in the reality of it as we were reminded this morning peace and mercy be upon them because these alone truly belong to christ do you is this describing you? And where Paul talks about the, he says, and the Israel of God. Now the way that he actually phrases it in the Greek makes it clear that the ones he's talking about as walking according to this rule and the ones who he's talking about as the Israel of God, that they're actually one and the same group of people. It's not two separate groups of people he's talking about. It's the same group. Christians are the Israel of God. And all who are the Israel of God walk according to the Christian gospel. Just like Paul did as a converted Jew. Just like Abraham did as we learned earlier in the letter. There's no difference. 
As we've been making our way through this letter and as we've concluded it this afternoon, and particularly as Paul has put this final emphasis on what the gospel isn't and what the gospel is, in your heart, if you're a believer, led by the Spirit, and with all the the words of the hymns that we've had, also, your heart should be crying out, yes, this is the gospel, and this is me in Christ Jesus, made new, dead to the world, and alive in Christ. That is where the peace and mercy of God may be known, and known in the fullest measure, because of the fullness of the work of Christ. Now, Paul, of course, had been born a Jew. Therefore, he would have been circumcised when he was just eight days old. But the only marks on his body that he wants to mention at verse 18 are the hundreds of scars. And it really was hundreds of scars on his head and especially on his back from the countless floggings and from the stoning that nearly left him dead, that he had endured for the cause of Christ. Because he knew and he preached what the gospel is. Don't talk to me about marks on your body and speak of circumcision, he's saying. What about this? You imagine him raising the shirt on his back. Are you carrying your cross daily? Are you bearing your load? Are you ready to share in Christ's sufferings? Because you know, and you are convinced by, and your life has been transformed by what the gospel is. Peace. Mercy. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, says Paul. Amen.